It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. You can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name's Kay Wenigle and today I'm joined by Michael Steindl. G'day Kay. This week we're continuing the theme of the impact of climate change on our ecosystems and biodiversity. Our guest today has expertise in threatened species recovery, a critical science as we face enormous challenges to our climate. Dr April Reside is a postdoc at the University of Queensland and studying with the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, where she employs the science of spatial analysis to research climate change impacts, adaptation and biodiversity conservation. Welcome, April, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Hello. Good to have you on board, and you certainly have got a lot of experience and knowledge in this area, so we look forward to getting it out of you. Okay, <laughs> So, April, what is Australia's status with threatened species? So, Australia is actually not doing very well, unfortunately, uh, in the global standard. We've had at least three vertebrates, so lizards and mammals, go extinct since 2009, and it probably is the fourth now just being listed. So... Yet we are losing species in Australia, which is a really sad story. Since 2009, just so just that yeah. recent. Mm. And when we've looked at the numbers of species that are going extinct, there hasn't been any change in the rate of extinction since um, European colonisation. It's been pretty steady. So this is starting to happen very, very quickly to many species. Is that what you're finding? It's. It's been uh, ongoing basically for the last 200 years pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, well, as we've known it more for the last 100 years. But yeah, it's been a steady rate and it's not getting any better, unfortunately. And has Australia's population got anything to do with it relative to other continents? Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, the pressures that the population are putting on the environment that are causing the extinctions largely, but... It's not, Australia is a different case to a lot of other continents. A lot of other continents, it is um, just direct human pressure, like needing to grow enough food in the right kind of densities and putting people. And Australia having such a low population density compared to the rest of the world, if you were just to look at our mammals, so just our native marsupials and native rats and mice and some of the bats, then actually those pressures are very different from the other parts of the world. There are often changes in fire regimes, there are often feral cats and foxes, as well as habitat loss. So uh, for, for the mammals, at least, it's very different to pressures that are making species go extinct in other places of the world. So we're excelling at exterminating them, April. Um, have we got any success stories in threatened species recovery? We do, yes. <laughs> I believe that's, we do. that's a relief. <laughs> Yeah, so a really big success story. So the islands are 
an interesting case. Australia's got, I think, nearly 8,000 islands, and some of them are big, like Macquarie Island, um, sub-Antarctic islands. And islands are quite vulnerable places because often the animals there evolve without any predators or many competitors. So islands are doing, uh, some islands are doing quite badly, but because they're relatively small places, we can often get in there and fix some of the problems really easily. So Macquarie Island has had a very, very big effort to get rid of the, all of the introduced rabbits and cats and all the species on Macquarie Island. And what's happened is the vegetation has come back and then a lot of the shore, the seabirds are coming back and so they're doing so much better than what they were. So, yeah, islands are, are where some of our conservation efforts are really starting to work. Thank you. And I had no idea we had that many islands. You're, yeah. you're using a tool that's called spatial analysis. Um, tell us what that is, please, and, and what you're using it to map, how you're mapping things. Yeah, so what we're doing is we're looking at where we're finding species. So I mostly work on animals. So you can look at where animals are found. And we have some really amazing databases in Australia, particularly the BirdLife Australia's database. And so... There are lots of Australians that really love bird watching, and they they say, I you know I went to Melbourne and I saw um, these birds, and so they write down all the locations that they've seen the animals, and then they lodge them all in this database. And then over the decades of data that accumulates, we can see where the species are and when, and we can look at what the conditions may have been at the time that those species are found. And when you've got enough information over enough time, you can actually start to see patterns. So some of the work that I've done is to look at how the weather conditions month to month over a few decades have actually influenced how suitable a particular area is, particularly for birds which do move around. And the birds in northern Australia and across the desert are quite mobile. They're really moving around the landscape depending on where the rain has fallen, where the food is, and they can't just stay in one spot they have to keep moving so it's all of that data collected by often volunteers over many years that gives us the information to then understand the patterns of movement so once we understand what conditions the species are using then we can use some of the future climate models to then try and understand where we think that suitable habitat might be into the future depending on how the climate's likely to change. Is it going to get wetter or drier? Is it going to get hotter or cooler? Not many places are going to get cooler, unfortunately. But generally, it's a combination of rainfall and temperature and those patterns that are helping us understand what might happen to their habitat into the future. And I can understand that that would be very effective for birds because, as you say, there are a lot of bird watchers in Australia. But are, are there other um, species that also have a good following that you can map? Um, yeah, we have good data on some of the reptiles and mammals. Birds are definitely tend to be the best, but there are concerted efforts to go out there and find um, mammals and reptiles and frogs. But I think as generally speaking, as you get smaller, your data tends to get worse. So... Um, the really small things have less known about them. And in fact, I believe a whole bunch of snails have just been described in the Kimberley. And I wish I could remember the number, but it was more than 10. It might have been 11 mm. new species of snail that's just been discovered. <laughs> They're quite small and people aren't taking as much notice of them as they are things like birds. Mm. Yeah, the, also, 
a sort of anthropogenic biases, aren't there, about the, the sorts of animals we pay attention to. Very um, much so. April, when we started researching this, this topic and, and your work and we saw spatial analysis, um, if someone had asked me, I just would have assumed that that was about species distribution and correlating that with habitat and land use and weather patterns. But the interesting thing is you're also looking at human institutional distributions, such as electorates. Um, tell us what you've found there, how you've brought that in. Yeah, well, I guess electorates are spatial, so you can overlay the electoral boundaries with where the threatened species are. So, yeah, that was, a, um, I guess, a bit of a provocative <laughs> exercise that our lab did. And, you know, it's just kind of a, a thought bubble. Um, my boss, James Watson, who's here at the University oh, of Queensland... Who, who he, we just spoke to last who week. Who just spoke to. <laughs> um, that was his brainchild and he just thought you know we we think of this as a representative democracy who's thinking about the animals you know who's representing those animals very so good we, point yeah so we had a look to actually calculate you know who are representing our threatened species and what was really encouraging that some of the mps actually reached out to james after that conversation article went live and went i'd really like to be briefed on the threatened species in my electorate if you can isn't so, that wonderful yeah it was really great and and so, what have you found? What give us a summary of the um, stuff you wrote up in the conversation article? Yeah, good question. Um, I didn't lead that one, so the, all the numbers aren't fresh in my head. But what was really interesting is that, as you can imagine, it's quite skewed. Um, we don't have an even distribution of threatened species across Australia, and I think it was that um, only ten ten electorates, ten yeah, ten electorates, ten MPs were responsible for the vast majority of threatened species. So because yeah. it really isn't evenly spread, there are a few individual people that really are holding a lot of responsibility for threatened species. And some of those people are less interested <laughs> in um, threatened species. I think from memory, Bob Catter's electorate in North Queensland... Oh, no. Was um, number and, two, I think, um, on your list of, of the yeah, 600. Yeah, and he um, certainly doesn't like fruit bats. Um, and I'm not sure how he goes with some of these other threatened species, but I don't think I've it's I've got to refrain from a comment about him and fruit bats. <laughs> yeah, if we've got time, I might talk about fruit bats a bit more later on. because it, uh, Love to. Another, bats are another one of my favourite topics. Yes, that's right, they are. So how can that knowledge be employed? You've already hinted at that or touched on it with you saying a couple of the uh, politicians actually asked to be uh, briefed on it. Is there anything more you can do? Yeah, look, I have a colleague um, who works in the environmental space and he often um, does a lot of work in Canberra talking to politicians and he says, you know, I wander those halls and for, there are so many lobbyists, industry lobbyists in there. You know, I'm, I am generally the only person in there talking to politicians about the environment and there'll be 15 industry lobbyists in there every day. And so, you know, I think that we really aren't getting people in there to talk about the environment, how important it is to our representatives. So I think having those conversations even is a really good start just mm. to let people know how important it is. Um, and, you know, it's not people or the environment. It can be both. And some, there's been some really nice analyses I've seen very recently where people have actually calculated the value that just 
bird watchers bring to tourism. And in fact, um, there was an analysis, this was in the US, but there was an analysis where a rare bird arrived in the US and it was over $200,000 were spent by people coming to this location and spending a week at this place mm-hmm. and buying food. And, and so quite a lot of localised tourism can be generated just by people wanting to see interesting birds, particularly because people tend to travel a long way to see birds. Yeah. And I think there's, I saw another analysis um, for the old growth forests that are now a threat in Poland, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the name because I'll get it terribly wrong. And again, another analysis showed that you compare the birdwatching revenue versus um, what you get from selling the timber by cutting down that forest. And you find that, you know, you cut down the forest and you make the revenue once and you have to wait, whatever it is, 40, 50, 60 years to get that revenue again. Birdwatchers come every year. They keep coming. Mm -hmm. And it was astounding how much more you could make out of birdwatching tourism than you could from selling timber from that forest. So I think that... (laughs) Just being aware of the actual economic benefits for people wanting to travel to see animals is really important and and all the other benefits that you get from having a healthy environment, of course. So, so far we've been discussing quite a few things but haven't actually touched much on climate change impacts. But one area that you've evaluated is the fire regime shifts and impacts on bird distribution. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so fire is a really interesting thing, of course, in the Australian landscape, and it does different things in northern Australia to the inland, to the southeast. And it's interesting because we don't really understand probably what the ideal fire regimes are for a lot of species in a lot of places. And we think we might know, and we're trying to reconstruct what they might have been under Aboriginal management. Mm. But often it's really hard to know, and so trying to understand what would be the best for a lot of species is done through some experiments. But experiments are hard because you need to do it over a really large spatial scale and understanding the weather conditions influencing the fire. And it then takes a really long time to see the results. Uh, Mm. I tried to have a look at this question by using some spatial analysis and correlating with the fire Um, So that's just one way of looking at it, and I think you probably need a whole bunch of different ways to look at it to try and find, you know, the real answer or the best. But, yeah, so what's happened in northern Australia where I focus that research is that it seems that the fire has become more frequent in a lot of places than it would have been historically. And so historically it may have burnt, you know, maybe once every five years, uh, and now particular areas are getting burnt every year, sometimes twice a year. So there's the frequency of burning, but also importantly, it's the timing of burning. So what we think has happened in under Aboriginal management is often that the fires tended to be smaller hunting fires that were patchy and they happened throughout the year and particularly in the early dry season. Mm-hmm. And so the fires were smaller and cooler. And now what's happened without that regular fire management in the landscape that the fuel builds up, builds up, builds up throughout the dry season. And then at the very end of the dry season, you've got a lot of dead timber and dry grass and it's really hot and it's really dry. And then the fires burn at a really large extent, very hot and start to um, kill trees and have a much bigger impact than it would have over a much greater area. And so instead of having patches of burnt and unburnt and different age classes, we're now just getting 
one age class, which is recently burnt and continually recently burnt. And so that's probably changing the structure of the landscape, which is making it less suitable for a lot of bird species. And so probably better fire management would be to get into the landscape and try and, again, recreate that patchy burning. Um, And so that was generally what we found just looking at the correlations of species distribution and the fire frequency, particularly the late dry season burning, that it was having quite a substantial impact on most of the bird species. Excuse me, your fire um, comments are highlighted just by the news overnight of what's happening in California where they've got incredible wildfires and a rating that they've never been able to use before. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Dr April Reside about the effect of climate change, of effect climate change is having on threatened species in Australia. Um, April, if I understand correctly, your main research interest is in relation to what they call refugia, can you explain that term and how it implies to threatened species? Yes, I can. Um, so I guess refuge, we think of a refuge as a place that someone, an animal or a, a person could hide when they're at threat of something. And so um, we use the words refuge and refugia in ecology um, to <laughs> talk about a place where an animal or a plant can survive um, when they're at threat. So we, and, you know, a lot of people kind of have different definitions of these terms, but the ones that we're working with, um, refuge being the, the place that an animal might be able to hide just temporarily. So maybe there's a bushfire and they, they head off to the gully and they hide in the gully until the bushfire passes and then the grass starts to grow back and then mm-hmm. they can move out of the gully. The refugia, we're thinking as places that are bigger that a species can survive in over evolutionary time. So it's what would remain suitable despite... So so a new home, essentially. ...climate change. Yeah, a new home. And it's often a smaller place than what might have been in a different um, climatic era. So this concept um, has come out of some research from Europe where what they've found is that over thousands of years due to the different climate changes that have happened throughout um, history that the tree distributions have shifted according to the the long-term climate changing. So as some places become unsuitable, the trees drop out of those areas, but as new places become suitable, slowly the trees start to grow in places that are that are different. So their distribution slowly, slowly changes over the thousands of years back and forth depending on the climate. But then they've discovered sort of odd results where from the pollen cores that they're getting this information from, they find that the species could actually stay in one place despite the majority of their range shifting these really large distances across thousands of years. There'd be one spot that just stayed suitable, that if you just took into account the broad landscape climate, it should have shifted. So there was something about the microclimate Mm. in that one spot that this species was able to cling on despite all these big changes. And so people are starting to think, well, okay, this is interesting. Clearly there are are some conditions in some places that just remain suitable. And one that's recently discovered in Australia um, is the warm eye pine. 
Yeah, I was just thinking when you described it, it was straight away what came to mind that yeah. the little tiny refuge that, and most people would be familiar with that one because of the press it received. So let's let's yeah, bring it and it's to quite amazing. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. So let's bring it to a specific species. Um, you've studied the southern black-throated finch, and you've mapped what's been happening in relation to that species. Tell us about that a bit, please. Yeah, okay. I guess that's something different. I haven't looked at climate change in detail with black-throated finch or even really looked at evolutionary refugia with black-throated finch. Um, unfortunately, we don't really have the luxury of thinking in terms of thousands of years of the black-throated finch. Mm-hmm. We're a little bit more um, thinking in decades. <laughs> so the, this is just finch. a straight threatened species? Yeah, and, and what's yeah. happening with it? Yeah, so black rose finch um, tends to like the places that we like as well, which doesn't do it much good. So <laughs> the black rose finches... Seems to work for possums. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're the ones that we've got to worry about. The species <laughs> like the areas that we like. So um, black rose finch, the southern subspecies, occurs from just north of Townsville. And it used to occur, occur all the way down to... Um, northern New South Wales, so, you know, really quite a big area going through most of southern Queensland. But since 1990, we haven't seen it really south of Rockhampton. Um, and so for your Victorian listeners, um, that's we we are estimating that it's lost about 80% of its distribution. And it's been just recently declared extinct in New South Wales and it's mm. endangered in Queensland and it's endangered federally. And the black-throated finch is a little grain-eating bird. It eats grass seeds, and so it needs to have the right kind of grasses providing the right kind of seeds all throughout the year. And so what's happened to its habitat, some of it's been cleared, particularly in southeast Queensland where there's a lot of clearing happening. A lot of the remaining habitat has been fragmented into little places, and there are very few places throughout black-throated finch's current distribution, if any, that don't have cattle grazing on it. So a lot of these places have native bush, but there's been subtle changes on the ground that have interrupted the um, seed availability for the little finch. Um, Also, there's a lot of weeds uh, that have come in, mostly with the grazing industry, lots of pasture grasses that don't give the right seeds at the right time of the year and around Townsville which is a hot spot for the finch it's Townsville is Australia's largest tropical city it's quite fast growing it has new highway upgrades it has shopping centres it has urban developments peri-urban developments and these are rapidly chewing up habitat for black road finch and the habitat that remains um, ends up really weedy and roads going through it and um, cows, and so the little bits that are left are declining in quality as well as just not having very much of it. So you just mentioned Townsville, which is fairly close to the proposed Adani Carmichael coal mine, and you've described the Adani plan for um, protecting the area as grossly inadequate. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, so as I was saying, the Townsville population of the Black Rose Finch is um, facing a lot of direct threats through that urban expansion. So the habitat that remains there is fragmented, small, and generally not very good quality. And what we've been really blown away with when anyone has gone out to central Queensland, um, out to 
around where the Adani Carmichael coal mine has been proposed, there is just so many black rose centres out there. It's really phenomenal. And I've found on a trip I did a few years ago, just driving down the road, you'd see flock of finches just flying across the road. You never see that in Townsville. You don't see big flocks of finches ever, and you certainly don't just see them as you're hurtling down the road. So <laughs> it was it was absolutely mind-blowing to go down and see these really large flocks of finches. And in fact, from the little amounts of data that we've got, because it's really hard to access that site now that it's under Adani's control, but some of the data we've got suggests that the flock sizes that are being found, so the number of birds in one flock out there, are larger than any flock that's ever been recorded around Townsville and certainly much larger, larger than all the flocks that are being recorded in Townsville now. So all of the evidence points to this being phenomenal habitat for black throated finch. And because they're being threatened so severely around the Townsville area, this desert upland central Queensland population is so important for the persistence of the species or the subspecies. And what really concerns us is that if the mine goes ahead and takes out the very best habitat that remains, but also anything that's left becomes fragmented and in smaller patches. So not only are we losing quite a lot of really good habitat, but we're making the remaining bits much worse. It's such bad news. For a species, it's lost 80% of its distribution. A lot of what's left is in bad quality. You take out the best that remains, Mm, you know, yeah. it really is just signing the death warrant. Yeah, another so, reason not to go ahead with the Adani coal mine. Yeah. Yeah. So we do only have a couple of minutes left, I'm sorry, April, but you're saying that the <clears throat> blackberry finch has um, been constrained to this small area of, of what's now prime for it, and that's looking like being obliterated substantially by the Adani mine. So what are they doing in terms of... Uh, they, they talk about um, offsets and things briefly... What are they doing there and does it work? There is no evidence that the offsets will work um, is the short answer. So they will, they're planning on reserving some areas that don't get cleared for the mine and they're proposing to take cows off areas to improve the habitat. We've never been able to improve habitat for black finch. We don't really know what that would mean or how to do it and so there is a lot of risk surrounding that and very little certainty about how we might make habitat better. But the fact is you take away the best bit, you can't go back from there. Um, habitat restoration is a long, sort of slow road and, you know, a lot of it, you never get to that final, you never get to the original habitat condition. So the area that they have proposed to set aside for black throat finch is about a third of what we calculated would be even legally required um, using the offset calculator with the best available science. So there's not enough area. They should put those offsets in place well before the mine goes ahead, prove that they're working, and then start to take away the best habitat. That would be the ideal scenario, and even... I think under any circumstances, removing the best habitat is going to be bad. Well, we've totally run out of time, <clears throat> unfortunately. And we, we can't, haven't even got around to talking about bats yet, and I've got a few more questions. <laughs> so I suggest to our listeners that you look up April Resides um, articles because they're absolutely fascinating and, um, and get a bit more information. Thanks so much for your time today, April. 
Yeah, thank you. We've been speaking to Dr April Reside about threatened species recovery in the face of climate change. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then you can go to bze.org.au and click on Podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate over time to help cover airtime costs and keep us on air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.